The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome, everybody, to Night Fright. Don't go anywhere tonight. Have we got a special show for you. Jump in your most comfy chair, pull a comforter way up on this cold eve, get the coffee going, get the tea going, or a beverage of your choice. Settle in, relax, kick your feet back. We're going to take you on one heck of a ride tonight. We're going to take you deep into the desert in Arizona to a place that is called the most famous lost mine in America. That's what it's deemed, folks. Now, this particular lost mine has all kinds of lore surrounding it, including Apache legends, which also include Geronimo. It includes murder. It includes deaths. It includes people that have not great reputations, let's put it that way, trying to manipulate people. What we're talking about tonight is the Lost Dutchman Gold Mine. And our guests tonight are Robert Kesselring and Bill Blackwell. And we just lost Bill because Skype is being funky tonight. I can see that. But we've got Robert with us, so uh, we're going to jump to it in a second. Just let me tell you a little bit about Robert. Robert Castlering lives in the Phoenix area of Arizona and served in the Vietnam War. Thank you very much for your service, my friend. He later graduated from SMU with a master's degree in electrical engineering and a math minor. Kesselring worked for Honeywell, Digital Equipment Company, and Raytheon in the course of his career, but it is n he's now semi-retired and running a small business. And you can see that business if you're watching on television tonight because you can see his background and all the uh, paraphernalia he has. It's a fabulous story, Robert. Now, when Bill told me about this, by the way, folks, Bill has returned, I think. Bill, are you there, my friend? Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm here. I'll, uh, 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 I'm back. He's back. The screen, went, the screen went blank for a second, so I'm here. That's okay. Uh, my mind does that a lot, too, so no worries. <laughs> goes blank. Um, Bill Blackwell contacted me about Robert, and... Um, what he told me about the story intrigued me so much, I opted to do a show specifically, specifically the whole show, on Robert Kesselring and the Lost Dutchman Gold Mine. Now, bear with me, folks, because at the end of the show, we may have to change the title of the Lost 
Dutchman Gold Mine to found Dutchman Gold Mine. And I think you'll probably agree with me that's what we're going to have to do because the legend shall change after tonight's show. Bill Blackwell, of course, is a very famous and renowned entertainment attorney and uh, for all the big stars in Hollywood, including yours truly, even though I live in Kingston and we're snowed in tonight, Obut, which means to the maximum in French. Um, Bill, can we start off and you can tell us how you met Robert and how you came across this story? Yeah, sure, Brent. And, and again, thanks for having the show tonight. I think this is going to be a one heck of a show. Um, I, when I was growing up, my father lived in Scottsdale, Arizona, and, and uh, I lived in Palm Springs with my mom. And um, I would drive over, or I would go over every summer to spend time with him. And when I was about 10 years old, he said, you know, we're going to go and we're going to go up to the mountains and find some gold. And, I, you know, you know, 10 years old, you're going, what, what? And he started, you know, talking about the lost Dutchman gold mine and Jacob Waltz. And, you know, it was a fast, you know, you're 10 years old. It's fascinating. And so we'd go every year. I, we, I would go over there every summer. Uh, we'd go up for a picnic uh, for a half a day. And, of course, you know, every rock I turned over, I thought there'd be gold under it. Um, and so it's, 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 a, it's a legend. It's a lore that I've, I've known about all these years. And so a few months ago, I just was surfing the internet and I said, well, let me just go to this one side and see, you know, who's searching for the, for the, the gold in the superstition mountains. And lo and behold, here was this great article that Robert had written, a five part series. And I started reading it. It was about, a, it took about two hours to get through this because there was a lot of photographs and maps and everything. And I was just enamored. And at the very end, he says he really needed the help of an attorney to assist him in trying to obtain the digging permits that are required and various other permits that, that are required for an archaeological dig. And so I immediately emailed him and said, I'm in. I, I, <laughs> you know, I am in this full, you know, with both feet. And, and you he got was your shovel out right away, I take it. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's I something did. we Canadians know a lot about, shoveling, trust me. Uh. I have my, yeah, my next-door neighbor has 10 of them, so I, you know, I, I, I had enough to go around. So um, uh, so I, 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 emailed, or I emailed the site and asked them to please uh, send my email off to Robert if they would, and they did, uh, luckily. And uh, Robert was kind enough to email me back, and so we've had a you know, correspondence and telephone dialogue going on for the last couple of months, uh, kind of planning a strategy. And, and uh, I'm very honored to be a part of this. Um, it's a it's an Indiana Jones adventure. That's, you know, how I refer to it. And you have to take your hat off uh, with uh, and Robert will tell you with the background of, of knowing how to look at maps and read maps. I think that was probably the key to him understanding where this was uh, just because of the uh, his engineering background and what he's done. Uh, uh, and um, so I'll let him, you know, starting with a story. It's a fabulous story, and it starts when he's 10 years old uh, as well. So uh, we have that in common. <laughs> <laughs> and you've met a great new friend as well. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I'm, I'm honored to be his friend, and, and I can't wait uh, to, uh, you know, to venture into the mountain range with him uh, down the road. That's going to be so amazing, and uh, for sure we're going to have you back on to tell us all about those journeys as well. Robert Kesselring, can you tell us a little bit about Jacob Waltz? Uh, that was the name that, uh, that Bill just um, dropped. Mm -hmm. How yeah. that story emanated from him stumbling out of the desert in the mid-1800s. Well, he was a uh, mining engineer, and he was uh, taught how to do his mining in Germany. Um, it was in... Uh, 
the early, I think about 1830s. Uh, the best reference on him was uh, written by Helen Corbin. And it's no longer in print, but it's considered the Bible on Jacob Waltz and the Lost Touchman Mine. And so most of the data I have comes from that. Um, she actually found the records where he uh, shipped across on a ship, ended up in Missouri, uh, tried to become a citizen and found that uh, he had to sign up with a Confederate state to become an American citizen. <laughs> and uh, then he learned that that wasn't politically the safest bet and made, <laughs> and made his way over to the gold rush of the 49ers where he was a little bit too late and uh, didn't fare very well. And he started uh, meeting some of the uh, Peralta family who were Mexican gold miners that had been there for centuries. And he sided up with them and they went back through Yuma and then they went up through the west side of Arizona uh, to an area called the Bradshaw Mountains, about the middle of the area. Uh, he started finding claims. He would always buddy up with other prospectors. His, his story was, I'm not a hard rock miner, I'm a prospector. I find it, I sell it, you do the digging. Well, uh, the Peraltas there had one member called Miguel Peralta. They got to be friends. Miguel kept losing his minds because he was a Mexican citizen. Mexico had lost the war with the United States. Anglos would come and steal his mind, tell him to beat it. So he'd wind up buying supplies from Miguel, and they got to know each other. Uh, eventually, after selling his claims in that area, he went south to Phoenix, down along Salt River, uh, got a large tract of land, was renting it to some Mexicans, and would go do some prospecting. And on one trip, he went to the Salt River, which is southeast uh, of uh, Phoenix, along the same river he was on. But he crossed in an area called Tortilla Flats. And on one trip, the Apaches jumped him during breakfast. And he had to beat feet out of there with virtually only the guns on his hip. Wow. He uh, traveled south, did an arc, went into a cave, spent two days in there with the bats and the rattlesnakes, as he put it, in his own words in writing. Uh, a lot of this information now comes from what he wrote to Miguel in a letter on his deathbed and uh, his deathbed testimony uh, that's also been published. There was a family that took him in as he was dying from pneumonia, and uh, they recorded his, his story about all this. So I guess uh, when he felt that it was safe to come out, they weren't trying to hunt him down. They had stolen all his gear. Uh, he traveled down around the base of the hill and started heading north up the riverbed to to go back to Fort McDowell. He had to refit himself and uh, talk to them about the Apaches. That's where the cavalry was. And as he did so, he came across boot sands crossing the stream bed that he's going down, and that didn't make sense. In an Indian country, uh, he followed it back to a, a little roly-poly hill area and uh, found a Mexican camp filled with gear, pigged out, went to sleep. When he woke up, the miners had come back, three of them. Uh, they got to shooting the breeze, and they asked him what he was doing, eating their food, and they laughed when they figured out what happened, and they befriended him. And they told him we were operating a gold mine. You want to see it? Oh, well, what, what gold prospector doesn't want to look at gold, right? So he ends up going up the hill with them, and he said that he was dumbfounded. There was more waste gold laying on the floor of this mine than he had gathered in his lifetime. And that the vein was 18 inches across. It had uh, iron, hematite, stained, and rose quartz. And about one-third of it was gold. And, and it was all uh, nuggets that you could break free of the quartz and everything freehand, which is why there was so much litter on the ground. Hmm. Well, they took him back home, and they fed him. And about the third day, he got gold fever so bad he couldn't stand it. 
One guy came back to get some supplies. He blew him away. When the other two came down looking for him, he blew them away. He took their gear. He took them out. They buried him. He buried him in the desert and took over the mine. What he didn't realize is one of the people that he had killed was the last survivor of the second massacre at that site. Oh. The one who knew where the mine was for the family. And he was there to try and get gold back for the protests because they had lost everything in the Mexican-American War. Well, anyway, he needed help. That's a lot of gold. And according to the Wells Fargo records, he shipped back something like $457,000 in gold to his sister. In those who, days? Yes, right. And gold was $20 an ounce. Okay? That's official records in, in Helen Corbin's book. Now, uh, he did so because he asked for help to get this stuff out. He had found two caches of gold and gold ore, and he made two more of his own by his own remarks and was still mining. And uh, so he asked for his nephew to come out and help. His nephew saw it went berserk. We have to file a claim on this mine. He said, no, it's in Apache country. We can't stay here. We can't build. We have to have below visibility. We can't protect it. There's people that are breezing through here looking for gold. We do anything at all out of the normal. We're going to lose this thing or we'll be waylaid and killed. We have a lot of gold to haul out of here, and we got to be very low profile. Nephew wouldn't listen to him, wouldn't shut up. And halfway back home, he blew his nephew away. Oh, man. He dragged a chain around his neck, hauled him over, threw him underneath the cleft of a rock, and his body has been found, complete with the jewelry that he said he left around his nephew's neck. And it was that guilt trip that caused him to send 90% of the gold he ever found to his sister. So Jacob doesn't sound like a, a very upstanding character, does he, as I described in the opening? By his, by his deathbed confession, he admits to having killed a minimum of 22 people and butchering their bodies to make it look like the Apaches did it. Now, when we, you talk about the Apaches, what did they have to say about Mr. Mr. Jacob <laughs> mining right in their backyard, right in their holy land? They have the same point of view that they've always had. And uh, uh, Geronimo once made a funny about that. If it wears a hat, kill it. Hmm. Because only the Apaches didn't. But they had been fed up with the, uh, the, um, the Jesuit priests and the Indians that they imported into their country, eating up their livestock, preserves, the wilderness, everything, and doing mining. Mm -hmm. uh, then they took on the uh, Mexicans themselves when they displaced some of the Indian miners. And then he took on the Anglos. They've had one perspective only. Uh, you don't disturb where our ancestors are buried. You don't destroy the wildlife and the wilderness that we depend on because we only have two ways of supporting ourselves. We hunt or we pillage. And it's a poor desert area. They have to pillage once in a while. And so burning all the firewood, killing all the animals, poisoning it with mercury means war. And the ground that they were in was considered holy ground. It's like uh, going to Arlington National Cemetery. They have one simple philosophy. When your relative dies, you bury him where he died. That's where the power is. And like the Egyptians, if you want to have help from the spirit world, you go to where that is like a portal. You tell him what you need. And you give him presents and gifts, leave him offerings. And they still do that to the day. Robert, did they hunt Jacob once they found out that he was in the area? 
There's I know. tales of them of him being persecuted, not persecuted, hunted to get not him out of the Not after the first event. He was very sneaky. So really well, under the radar. Okay. Absolutely. One of the things that uh, one of the people uh, uh, talked about was a friend that befriended him, and they took his deathbed confession, followed him one time. And this guy comes around the bend, and, and here sits the Dutchman in a small little rock cleft with his rifle trained at him. And, he's, and he said, as soon as he saw him, he turned around and went back home. And when the Dutchman came back with his load of gold, he says, I'm glad you turned around. I would have killed you if you'd taken another step. He was a sly uh, guy. And if you've never been in that area, you'll know that uh, it's a volcano that's erupted five times. It's a super volcano. Everything is just tossed and jumbled. Everything looks out of place. Uh, lots of lots of plant cover, everything. A person can hide in a heartbeat. So, Robert, uh, I wanted to, I wanted, uh, I wanted you to explain to the viewers, it, uh, with regards to when you were younger, uh, you were in the airplane and, and uh, you were coming over the the superstition, and you took a photograph and you saw an arrow uh, that had been uh, 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 put there, uh, I guess, by the Apaches or the, or or the the, uh, the miners as to a marker as to where these mines were. I, I thought it was a fantastic uh, story that, about that. Can you explain about that? Well, okay. And before I start, let me say if there are questions, they can go to desertusa.com. They can search for the article that says it's the treasure of the Church of Santa Fe. And they'll get a lot of details there. I've got my books on lulu.com, they're PDF. And there's also some material in Wikipedia on my work. Okay. And as always, folks, www.nightfrightshow.com. That'll be the focal point for all Robert's connections. You'll be able to download the PDFs, as he say, and also go to Lulu and be able to get the articles. So there won't be any problems there. www.nightfrightshow. Our guest tonight, Robert Kesselring, and also Bill Blackwell. And we're talking about the lost, or the found, Dutchman gold mine. Please, okay. Robert. Thank you. To recap for you, uh, when I was 10, I was given a book by a great aunt about uh, the Peraltas and the Dutchman. And it was uh, written by a, uh, a treasure hunter, Barry Storm. It was signed by him, and I was enthralled, and I read it, and read it, and read it. By the time that I was about 45, uh, I, my mother passed away, and I had to fly out. And as we did, we flew over the Superstition Mountains, and I had hiked a few times there. I was still enthralled with everything. As you say, I was looking through my telephoto lens because I like to photograph wildlife. And I saw an arrow on the ground that was huge. It, it, it was impossible to miss when looking through a lens. And um, so I noted the location and wondered what that was. It, it, it almost seemed too modern, but it was obviously well-worn and aged. Uh, 2009 was along, and I come across Helen Corbin's book. And here's this arrow. And it's in a map that was given to her husband, the Attorney General for Arizona. And it's just above where the map is. It's in petroglyphs made by the Peraltas, which was in the book I had read as a 10-year-old. Huh. Um, so I got onto Google Earth. I said, you know, if that can be there, you got to be able to see it. So I got on Google Earth, and I looked that sucker up, and there it was. And it was 165 feet long and 65 feet wide. You're kidding. So is it like the Nicene lines that they, you can only view it from a high area, perhaps on top of the mountains that are there? 
or perhaps yes. from, only from the air? I'm not trying to bring UFOs no, into no. this. No, there, no, there are cliffs just uh, to the east of it that are very, very high, and you can look down upon it, and it points up towards the massacre area. Wow. And it's dug it, in the ground, or is it just laid out with rock? They buried the ground. They buried the ground. Okay. It's volcanic ash they buried. But the thing of it is that the map says that there were seven pits where there were treasure that was buried or something. And you can see in the Google Earth images and so forth that. And so what I did was I said, you know, uh, i got to figure these maps out. So from 2010 to 2013, I began with sincere effort to understand the maps, tear them apart. And the more maps I got, I realized there was one map that had insets. Basically a large map, 10 miles by 10 miles, and then smaller, smaller, smaller areas until the last one was one square kilometer. And I said to the wife, I said, we got to do some aerial surveys. I got to figure out if this is right, and then I got to go in and look at it. Well, Linda did uh, a full day in a helicopter, grabbed about 2,500 shots. She went over 100 square miles and verified that the top master map was correct. I had found a secret symbol that answered the riddle on the instructions. It says you got to find the secret heart. I did, and I put the smallest map there, and it says, okay, we got 31 places where stuff is buried. And I looked in Google Earth, and all the land features on that map were there. This is the high point to the south. There's a mountain. Here's a mine. There's a low spot. Okay, I got to get my act together. And we went back for another aerial survey over that one square kilometer zone. And there's a canyon there called Deering Canyon. So I said to my friend, Mark Bellinger, I said, I want to fly zigzag over this place like half a dozen times. And I'm just going to take picture after picture after picture. Hmm. So when we got done, I could see... Symbols laid out on the ground like triangles and arrows. I could see the foundations of buildings. I could see where there had been mining done. Wow. I could see trails and everything that I expected to find according to the map. I said, I know exactly where it is. I know the physical dimensions. And we also found a triangle that's like 100 feet on a side that was on another piece of the map that says, this is the direction you got to go. So I had so much evidence, it, I just had to get on the ground and get in there. And as I was looking at my pictures, when we were swinging down through Deering Canyon, mm-hmm. there's this mine. And a few feet away is this foundation to a building laid out in stones. And it's at the very head of the canyon. The bell went off in my head. I said, that's exactly how he, Jacob Waltz, wrote in his letter to Miguel Peralta. He says, you got to come down. And I've always been mystified in his letter what he meant. And what he had said is, well, you got to go down, you got to go past the foundation of the house, you got to go back to the house, and then you got to go back to the mine, which is off your left. The poor guy was from Germany. He was describing what we call a switchback. And you can see the switchback. Can you tell folks like me what a switchback is? Sure. If you're going uh, up and down a mountain. I'm not from Germany, I'm from Canada. I apologize to all no, those no. who actually know. If you're going up and down a mountain, though, okay, with those mules we were talking about. You got to zigzag because you can only go up at a certain speed, right? You can't sure, go of straight up, right? Yeah, guys with 18 wheelers know about that. Do a hairpin turn, go back the other way, back and forth. He had one year hairpin turn. You go down the hill and then you go up the hill towards the house and you do another U turn. You walk along the cliff and there's the mine. I see. Okay, okay. And there it was. There it was. And I said, you know, there's no claim that's been filed by the Dutchman. Uh, he didn't leave a sign, mm-hmm. but he told people exactly where it was, and everything he put in handwriting of his own matches the site. 
And I've had conversations with others who've looked for it as well as the Forest Service and others. And uh, the people that don't want anybody to know about it just turn around and walk away. And the people that are very interested in it get real excited. Now, have you been on the ground there, Robert? Have you been on the ground there to actually view it? Have not gone to there yet because it's about uh, uh, 1,500 foot up. And it's very dangerous rocky ground to go Mm -hmm. over. And I've been concentrating on verifying what's on the maps. And so what I did was I said, hey, I've got, Waltz knows the Peraltas, he knows the legend, and he kept talking about it. And so I took everything that Jacob Waltz had said. And an example of that is that uh, when you take three or four stones and make a base and you put this spike up that looks like one of those tank traps from World War II, sticks Mm -hmm. up, he called those Felsenspitze. He says, that's how the Mexicans mark things. This place is littered with them. So I put copies of images of those in, in things. There were secret marks on cactuses. There were triangles carved into stone. There were triangles laid out in stone and arrows and all these other things that he had talked about. And then he talked about the mines that they were working on. And he talked about how they did things in, in hexagons like honeybees. And when they found a good clump that they had to do some hard rock mining instead of plastering, uh, he, they would have a big circle around it, and the mules would come up, circle around it. They'd load all the mules, and they all pull out like a train. Hmm. I found one, so I photographed that. Wow. So I was so busy with verifying the first things that were on this to try to get as much empirical evidence, because if I go to the mine, I can't dig. This area is in a, in a superstition wilderness area. Right. I can prospect... I can uh, take pictures, I can document, I can't dig. How far beneath the surface would the mine be? Would it be a a vertical shaft or a horizontal shaft cutting into the side of a mountain? The shaft that I saw, that I photographed, is a vertical shaft butted up against the face of the cliff. Okay. And what he said was that there's a vein that runs uh, vertical through the entire mountain chain for miles, and that it even came out down below him in that canyon I talked about, and then he dug that out and covered it up so people wouldn't notice the vein. Okay, you've just won $100 million. How would you set up an expedition to get out there? I need officials that work at universities that are archaeologists that would be willing to help direct and get the other experts needed to get the permits and to take over an archaeological dig. While I have a... uh, 3D imaging metal detector I took there, and I imaged about half of the treasure hoard, about 15,000 bars of gold. I can't call them gold because I can't dig one up, but I can tell you what, I don't think they buried lead and it's non-ferrous. Can you tell us about the rover, as you call it? Sure. The rover was manufactured by a company initials OKM. They're from Germany. Basically, it's... um, like an eye that detects the radiation naturally coming from the Earth, its own signals, and it uses it to image what says underground down to about 15 feet. And I have uh, trained myself with it. I worked with OKM engineers and developed a technique for calibrating it so I could get the exact dimensions and depth. And uh, it produces a a signal that sends by Bluetooth to your cell phone. So you can see the results as you're walking. It weighs about a pound and a half. Runs on two AA batteries. Looks like a hiking stick. Yeah. And then 
when you're done, you transfer that to your laptop and you process it with the software to get the 3D view and you can take exact measurements. That's incredible. Now, in what area of the mountains were you in to take these readings? Okay, there were two areas because uh, when I first said to friends that I'm going to go in to analyze this and I didn't know how I could show gold bullion. Uh, a man stepped forward named Rick, who I'm not going to mention his last name at this point. He had discovered one of the port parts of the treasure. The map indicates there's multiple burial sites of treasure. Multiple and he, burials. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. And that, and, and that I found one, he's found one, and we think we know where the third site is. The third site uh, was found by another man who told me that he had been there, but everybody faces the same problem. The bureaucracy says, don't bother, do not disturb. But uh, this man was an eyewitness, and uh, he actually went in and saw the bullion, saw the other material that was buried there, and uh, 15 skeletons that had their heads stove in by a, a stone axe. Oh, and, and when he went to go back, a, a miner had filed a gold claim on the place, and there had been a flash flood that filled the entrance to this, to, this, this tomb with all this bullion with uh, dirt. And he had to wait 25 years for this guy to get off of it. He wasn't going to tell him about it. Well, after he thinks he found it again, he had no way of knowing. So he asked me to please go image it. And I said, I'll tell you what I'll do, Rick. You draw a map for me, and I'm going to do a blind test. I'm going to take the data, and we're going to compare results. And we had direct correlation. And I sent my data to the OKM engineers, and they said, what you found is non-ferrous man-made material. Whoa. And I had measured flag. Yeah, and I'd measured the floor and the ceiling of this area and exactly matched his dimensions where he said there was a gun rack with old carbine, old uh, wet rifles in it. It was there. He says there's an oil painting collection in there. An oil painting collection. Now, yep. speculation, where do you think these treasures have come from that are, are located in this area? Okay, the map is titled the treasure of the Church of Santa Fe. The date on it is 1751. That's important. In 1751, three priests, three priests had so abused the uh, Pima Indians, they went to war. And the king of Spain himself had to settle with the Pimas in order to go back and start operating the mines again. By the 1760s, the king is wondering where his share of the gold's gone. And they go digging and they find out that many of the Jesuit priests trying to flee to Mexico had gathered up all the hoard they had and hauled it off towards the Superstition Mountains and vanished. Huh. He declares that Black Robe Jesuits is out of business. He gathers them up, takes them off to California, and he tortures them all to death trying to find it out. The punchline is that the 15 guys that took it to bury it are still in the cave. Oh. oh. That's what this other guy found. And he said the date on the on the on the inside of the mine says 1711. So this stuff could be material that has been gathered for hundreds of years. But why take it there is the question. And that was the question the Forest Service put to me. And I said, well, guys, look at the date on the map. It's October 1847. What happened in 1847? Well, in 46, the United States sent General Kearney in. He takes Santa Fe. And he blows clean through and leaves behind a contingency, and he's going to California, then to Mexico City. Well, the entire time that the uh, King of Spain was ruling and the Mexican government was ruling, Santa Ana and company, the New Mexican territory, which included Arizona, 
was trying to secede. Now they've got forces running away. They're left with a small couple of company of American soldiers. They've declared everybody's an American citizen. They've got this stuff. They've got to hide it, so they take it to the church. It's holy ground. Won't be bothered, right? You would think. Now, yep. That's what you would hope, right? Yep. So they get that far with it, and they say, we're going to secede from the United States just like Texas. And the Taos Rebellion is born. And all that stash is hauled away, and I believe it was going to be the treasury of the new country of New Mexico. You know, that makes were, perfect sense. They would need it to fund the war for secession. Yep, absolutely. And what happens? The guys in the home front start fighting. The miners start hauling off all these mining supplies, right? Take their convoys in. They get everything buried and mapped. They create a map where they put it. They got their maps with them. They get massacred. The mass gets scattered in the desert. Some went north, some went south. They get all done. A few of the survivors know what they've done, but they're scared to go back because when they get back home, they find out the United States Army cornered the Taos rebels in a church and blew it to smithereens, all documents, all people, you name it. Mm. It was debris. Nobody that was interested in the secession and had invested in it and was a leader was going to step forward and say, wait a minute, I'm a rebel. I want to secede. Everybody clams up about what's been hidden in the superstitions. They decide, okay, we're going to lose. We're probably going to have to go to Mexico. We've lost this war with the United States. That's what evolves. And by the Civil War, they're thinking, we got to go back and get that. We're going to need that. We're going to have to set up our own little state out here. They put together another force, and they go up. They go up because all the troops have been called out of the Southwest to go fight in the Civil War. <laughs> and they made the same mistake twice, and they lost another 86 people. They lost another 86. Can I just jump to Bill for a second, Bill Blackwell? Bill, if these artifacts were to be dug up, what would be the chain of possession? Who would actually own them? Would it be considered a heritage or would it go back to the church? Would it go back to the people from the church? Any idea, Bill? Bill? Well, um, it, well, it's in the it's in a marked wilderness area under the Antiquities Act. Um, we have to contact the Department of, or I have to contact the Department of Interior, Department of Agriculture, uh, and of course the Forestry. The government's going to evidentially, uh, um, evidently uh, own this at some point in time, and or the. The act says that it has to be turned over to a museum, a renowned museum for public viewing. So the, the, the gold bullion that Robert has found, uh, any of the artifacts, uh, the, the, the guns that he talks about, the paintings that, uh, that are in this tomb, along with, along with some other stuff that he hasn't mentioned, um, would, would have to be turned over to, again, a museum. Uh, but the government ev uh, eventually is going to, you know, control this. When so, you say government bill, do you mean the state government, or do you? No, mean this is on federal. This is on federal okay. land. Now, okay. now the, I think Robert indicated to me, uh, and I'm learning about this too. This, this is a fascinating story. Oh, it's incredible. Uh, there's a lot. You know, Robert's been doing this uh, for a number of years, uh, and I've just been doing it for the last, you know, 90 days. But. Uh, the, the tomb that uh, was the, the third treasure, which he, which is which he refers to, and this is the tomb, um, is on state land. 
So that's another. So that's something that I don't know yet about. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a conundrum. www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest connections. Take you right to a place where you can buy his book, and also it'll take you right to a place where he has a website with tons more information on this amazing story about the lost Dutchman gold mine. And perhaps you'll agree with me after tonight. They're going to change the name to the Found Dutchman Gold Mine. Now, when we left, we were talking about a fellow by the name of Adolf Ruth. I was wondering if we could start over with that story. Yeah, sure. Thank Adolf, you. Adolf Ruth, as I say, he was in California, a post office worker that uh, uh, wanted to retire. His hobby was treasure hunting. Uh, he had, a, he had an injury on one hunt where he, he broke his leg and they had to pin things back together. So he had a bit of a funny gait was at risk continuing to do treasure hunting. And his son worked down on the border. And when some Peraltas decided that they wanted to come back into the United States, uh, in order to help cover the fees and the other expenses, they uh, they bartered their way using these maps, which the uh, the agent, his son, decided to forward on to his, to his father. His father used them and... Uh, gathered up all the information. Then he corresponded with the family, the Peraltas themselves, back right. in Mexico. And after he had finished doing all of this, uh, some funny things were written in these letters. One of them was that the Mexicans said, well, we have maps we can't understand because there's funny mathematics on it, and we haven't been able to solve these equations. And that's one of the things I talk about in my book, because what it was is that the, uh, the Mexicans went to the metric system in 1823. Oh, and they were the best mining engineering company country uh, in the world because of their hundreds of years with the, the Mexican and South American mines. So the Dutchman was always interested in talking with them about the techniques for the Southwest. And uh, the, the people themselves were pretty well known. The Peraltas were a very large family and had owned and, owned and operated large mines and, and land and cattle. So this was not unknown to him and neither were this, this family. And after he talked with them, got the data together, he assembled his own map, got together uh, the required gear, and went in to go locate it. Well, his, uh, after he spent a week out there, uh, his body was found, and it was found by a rancher who was keeping cattle in the area where the springs and the riverbed and everything else was that the Peraltas had been using for their mules. And... He didn't want gold treasure hunters destroying the area and scattering his cattle, making him climb the mountains to go get him. He threw that body on his horse, dragged it a couple of miles over to another mesa, dropped it, then went and got the authorities. The skull fell off. And it was closer to where he had actually died. And a skull had a bullet hole in it. Okay? Yeah. So, so there's two, so there's two stories to where he was found. To say where he was found isn't clear and concise enough. See, when the parts are in different places, right? Well, his skull was found within a mile of my campsite where this treasure is. And in his wallet was the note that he had left, Vidi Vini Victi, which is the Latin I came, I saw I conquered. He wrote on there, I found the mine. He says it's a couple thousand feet up. And it is. That's where what I photographed and give the GPS coordinates for is that meaning that not only do I have the Dutchman's information matching it, mm -hmm. the Peralta stories matching it, I've got Ruth's data matching it. 
So he ended up passing, and none of the maps he had with him were with him when they found him. They suspected he had been robbed for his maps. These maps eventually did reappear, and I've actually seen some uh, some draft copies of them. Okay. Now, some of this, you know, reminds me a little bit of the um, the lore that surrounds the dig that went on in 1921 over in um, the Giza Plateau when they were digging up uh, the tombs and things of that nature, almost like there's a curse on this thing. Is yeah, really we're looking for the paranormal. We sure have it. There's, there's no question about that. And um, Do you uh, fear for your own safety? Because, I mean, well, a lot of people have been murdered and died. And... Half the time I go in there, I'm followed. And I've had one person come in my camp at night and had to pull a Glock on me. Really? Okay. Oh, oh, my yeah. God. Get him out of there. I've had people that I see trailing me, and I pull the same game that Waltz did. I pull off to the trail back where the, the reeds and the brush is high, sit down, suck a little water, you know, throw my camel back with a little straw, sure. wait, and they'll inevitably come by and look terrified to see me. And I've had one spot me about 30 feet away and do a 90-degree turn off and run up the hills and hide and never be seen again. I've had them show up with 30-30 rifles walking up on me, pretending that they were hunting in a no-hunting zone. Yeah, really. Out of season. Oh, yeah. So bodies have been there. And uh, there's a, a good gentleman named Tom Cullenborn who thinks that the mine doesn't exist, but he has great documentation. He's got his show on the radio. And he says that, you know, there's been probably 50 to 100 people that have been murdered. Up. So you've got these guys following you in the middle of the desert, Robert. Yep. And um, do you think they're government guys? Do you think they're just uh, somebody out to follow you, to, to rip you off if you do well, find the money? I think it's all of them. There, there are three groups, okay? First of all, it's next to Phoenix, which is the fourth largest city in the United States, and they have a drug problem. And I've run into the people that are stashing their drugs in the wilderness. So I've got drug dealers. I've also got the odd person that wants to be able to find out what I'm doing and see if they can get some. The third group, aside from the Rangers, is a little known business called the Site Stewardship Program that they run. Site Stewardship basically is a citizen's army to watch areas of heritage they want to protect, but they don't want to acknowledge or review. And these people are volunteers and they're given an assignment, they're given training on how to uh, gather data for arrests and they can get on radios and they can call in uh, sheriffs and have the, the people arrested if they disturb a site. And I've encountered all of them. Wow. Jeez. Um, Helps to have been a combat veteran. I was going to say, thank God you were in Vietnam and you know how to uh, be stealthy, somewhat stealthy. But you must worry still when your wife is out with you. I had one lady walk up to me who looked like she'd just gotten off the airplane after sleeping through all the night on it. And I was just sitting at a table texting a friend about this. Uh, who was uh, one of my fellow searchers. And she sits down to me, and she's eating an ice cream. She says, you know, I know all about your work. I said, and I'm thinking she's talking about my quilting business. And she says, no, I'm talking about your treasure hunting business. Oh. She, she says, you know, uh, I wouldn't want to be you, your friends, or your family. You're all dead. Oh. Just called like that. And I looked at her, and I said, then you guys don't understand anything. And she says, what do you mean? And I said, why do you think I published why do you think I tell people where everything is and I say, it's a heritage site. We need to protect our heritage. Let's get professionals in on it. Let them do the research. Let them do the digging. I don't need anything. I just provide information. I'll go out and show them. But I need these pros to come in and take it over. And I'm looking for them. 
uh, I said, by making it public, by pro providing everyone with this information, I said, I sent you my worst army, and I'm useless. I said, a good leader can be wasted, and the organization will continue. And she says, what army? I said, all the greedy people that are out there, you got to beat them to it. Hmm. And God knows they are a plethora. Now, what's next? If Is it to try to find funds somewhere to get out and do that archaeological dig? Yes, we're, we're looking for archaeologists willing to try and uh, establish a relationship within a university setting so that we can have people that are experts in the flora, the fauna, the impact studies that would have to be done, right. uh, all of that material. Someone that's acquainted with these processes, the wickets we have to go through with the government, someone that can comfort them because... They're at risk. They don't have the resources to protect the area, to take conservation steps and everything else. They need a professional organization to come forward. And I'm looking for those those people, and I'm willing to take them out there and, and show them the ropes, show them the stuff, and they can make an independent assessment. Robert, have you been in touch with any universities at this point? Yes, yes I have, and I've also contacted private archaeologists trying to get them interested in it. I've talked to the uh, governor of New Mexico via her office. Uh, Senator McCain and the others. Senator McCain's response was, you know, this is all up to the courts now. I can't give you a hand and I have nothing to say because they won't appreciate what I would say. Mm -hmm. The governor of New Mexico said, if the, if the Forest Service says, leave it alone, don't go in, that's the final matter until somebody changes their opinion. We can't be a part of it. She's, Bill, okay. any comments on that? Well, yeah, I, uh, several. Um, uh, as I said, uh, because this falls under the Antiquities Act, if you read if you read the Act, and uh, uh, you know you you have the, the Department of Interior, Department of Agriculture, and and so I, I have to reach out to them, and I had talked to Robert that you know in that uh, they say that you know digging permits can be uh, can can be given out to higher institutions or or or, or you know renowned museums. And so, it, and I, and at that point, I didn't know Robert had reached out to, a, I think it was the University of Arizona at one time. And so I came to him, I said, well, you know, it, it makes all the sense in the world for me to start contacting Arizona, the two universities in Arizona, mm -hmm. the two major universities in New Mexico. Uh, having graduated from the University of Colorado, I've got some contacts there. Uh, and so that that's where I'm going to start and see if we can because of what uh, Robert has published now uh, with the underground uh, photography, when you can actually see, you know, these gold bullion bars, yeah, it, to me, it's a no-brainer. I mean, if I was the head of an archaeology department, I go, when and where and when, you know, and, and, yeah. and I'm there, you know. So, um, so that's, what, uh, that's what we're going to do. Uh, and then, you know, where that leads us, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, we can get someone from the government that understands this. I know Robert has been frustrated by the Department of Forestry uh, and, and has had several talks with them, a number of talks with them, uh, and, and he can go into that uh, with if he wants um, and, and kind of has hit a roadblock there. But, you know, people change in these departments. So hopefully we get a hold of someone that, you know, understands the significance of this. And really, you know, Robert's such an honorable guy. You know, he's been out there at 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, he'll tell you. He pitches his tent over one of the, the gold catches he's found. All he has to do is dig down two feet, and he's got a gold bar. But he hasn't done that, you know. He wants this to be an archaeological dig, and he wants to be it scientific. And he wants to, you know, he wants to do it the right way. And, he, and uh, you know, he's, he, I can't tell you how honorable he is. So um, that's where we're at right now. So you got two straight-up guys, and um, this is an incredible Indiana Jones story.
It truly it, is. Robert, uh, uh, if you could uh, tell your story about how you and your wife were able to take that sandstone uh, uh, map that was found, and, and you may want to uh, elaborate on who found that that's in the museum there at the Superstition Mountains, and you guys put it on its side, and you, you shot the light across the, 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 the side of that map, and, and that's how you were able to find all these different caches with the, 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 the 30 caches that have the, the various uh, uh, gold bars in them. Okay. Well, in, in my texts and, and in my article online, I talk about how once I realized that this arrow was of such a huge physical scale, the maps probably were something very, very large, not like one hillside. And uh, everybody I talked to said, well, you know, the squiggly lines, that represent uh, the silhouette of a mountain. I, I don't think so. I've never seen one like that. Oh, well, the other guy says it's a riverbed, and I don't think that's that. We don't have that many rivers. As I got to looking at it, I realized that there were uh, some uh, some odd things in it in the way of algebra. I started digging, and uh, I had seen pictures of this stone map, as you say. They're online. I finally decided to go see them, and they're on display at the Superstition Mountain Historical Society uh, just outside of uh, Apache Junction. And as I was looking at them, I realized that there was a texture to it as if they'd been using this to get a rubbing, to have a map. And so what I did was I signed the light sideways across it to see the, the, the delicate features. And inside the number eight was a heart that was carved. And one of the instruction maps, there's a stone there that's a white map called the priest stone, says, hey, if you want to find the gold, you got to find the hearts. Well, there's a heart that gets inserted into the second stone. And uh, that wasn't it. That hadn't worked. Charles Kenworthy tried that one. Didn't work for him. Didn't work for me. And then there was this Latin heart I'd found online, and I said, okay, but how do you know where this goes? Mm. And then I discovered there were two stone crosses that had been found, and all said we had seven pieces that were non-destructible that were this map. And uh, so what I decided was that I had to orient the map. It turns out that up and down is not north, it's east. They did that on several maps. They did other things like flip the maps upside down so that they were reverse images. They had some very standard gimmicks, but they'd always give you a clue, like the name of a star on the edge of the thing that was in the wrong horizon, unless you realized that was the name of a star. So as I got done doing that, I think that stone, the, the white stone there, there, whatever, they says Antares, for example. Anyways, when I got done organizing all this, I realized that these were trails, that this thing, which was a squiggly line with dots, looked like a standard road map. So I went to go look at old maps that were from Spain and Mexico from the period, and they call them a post-road map. And basically what they had done was every kilometer on an 18-kilometer trail, they put in a safety zone. They would have a cache of weapons and people and a spot to go for cover, and uh, they could hole up until the rest could come to rescue. And so that's where the miners would retreat to at night. Wow. Okay. And once I had that figured out, it was just a matter of, okay, this one says use this piece here, use this piece here. And when I placed the Latin heart on that spot, I realized it was a reverse image. I flipped it over. All the terrain features matched. So I started drawing an X where it says in Roman numerals, ah, oh, we got two buried over here, 15,000 over here, da-da-da. And uh, I took my, my uh, underground imaging uh, radar down there, and there they were. Wow. It That's took me amazing. about three years to do all that. Three years. And people three have been years. looking for this thing for centuries. 
and it's about uh, 12 miles. And the trail that I take takes me all day to do it because I'm an old man, 66. But it's the exact same trail that uh, Jacob Waltz talks about. Huh. You take the first uh, first water trail to the second water. Take the second water down Boulder. Take Cavalry Trail up and over. And when you hit the riverbed and you look up the hill, you're looking at his mine. And he used to say, when I'm at my mine entrance, I look down, I see the soldiers on Cavalry Trail. You're right there where that big triangle is. I told you about it's 100 feet on a side. Mm-hmm. And it's telling you with marks on the saguaro cactus to go another distance over there. And you do. And you're standing where the map says, notice the triangle. Notice triangulum. And there's this huge triangle, about six by six by six, laid out in stones. And Any take... idea who laid all these clues and and the maps out? Not the maps so much, but the clues on the ground. For example, the um, the writings on, on the uh, cactus and things like that. Well, it's I think it was done over over centuries. The oldest maps were done in petroglyph, and they're still there. Mm-hmm. The the most recent things were the things I discovered, which had been carved into the saguaros. And we know that the last Peralta on record was uh, Cristobal Peralta. He came from Spain with the maps. And I believe he's the one that made the white cross, or I mean the white arrow that's out there. He also put a white cross dead center in lead paint on the, in, the, in the massacre area. He drew crosses uh, at the start of the trail where the maps were found. And he also drew arrows showing where the entrances to mines were that were hidden with lead-based paint on the mountains. Lead-based paint should fade over time, become clear, if it's very old. Right. And so I think that the marks span everywhere from the 1700s all up to 1926. And the markings that I found in the cactus at the massacre site are identical in in age and uh, shapes and everything done back at the Jesuit treasure site. That's the one that's uh, about 15 miles south of the massacre site. There's one that's in the middle that's the one that's the uh, the cave that has the uh, nine-foot statue of Mary holding Jesus. Oh, you got to tell us about that. Well, there's a, there's a third part of the treasure story, and uh, the gentleman I ran into had said that uh, he got sick. He was out looking for the Dutchman's mine. Weather was terrible, thundering and weather bad, flash floods. He starts going back to try to go the same rounds the Dutchman did to get back to the Main Salt River and get to his car. Anyway... He tried to cross the river and got swept to the side. He had to get out to keep from being drowned. As he did so, he noticed a black hole up in the rock, and he went over towards that. And it was just uh, the standard that we've seen. The Peralta mines, you see, had to be hidden from Indians. And they could put a bush in front of something that might be the size of an average garbage can. So it would open up big inside. You can stand up. But to get in, you got to crawl on all fours almost. I see. Okay. Right? Yeah. And that way they could they could be obscure to the Apaches, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's what he spotted. And as he went in, he, he stumbled across a, a mountain lion. It came screaming out of there. He had a duck to get out of that way. And uh, he turned on his flashlight. He just had he had a fever. He was sick. He wanted the storm to lighten up before he'd go home. And he saw something reflect on his flashlight. And he looked in the back, and there's his gold statue, nine feet tall, and gold bars behind it going back into the mine shaft. And he goes over to the statue, and it's kind of one of these hollow things to where it looks like it might have been uh, wood that had been covered with gold uh, foil or something. Okay. Uh, and the back of it was open like a log, like a canoe. It was filled up with bags, uh, old rawhide bags of gold nuggets. So and once again, funny. is this part of that treasure that came from the church? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's the whole thing. So and, you and just the one, all one over the place. The 15 bodies also has a silver baptismal font, 
with coins and stones, precious stones. It's, it, they've got a uh, big book that looks like a Gutenberg, maybe. Nobody's opened it. Wow. They've got uh, the silver and rock gold uh, uh, ornate stuff that went between the altar and the people in the pews. That's all in there. So there's church stuff there, but there's also all this bullion. If you were to get the university behind you, how would you get the team out there? What? There's what? a... Uh... Yeah, there's a there's a uh, organization. Well, Robert can tell you uh, uh, out of Tucson. The fact the gentleman, I think Robert owns the uh, uh, the old OK Corral. Is that right? Yeah, the, the last man that got a treasure hunting permit there, uh, Ron Feldman, has two sons. You've probably seen them on Ice Cold Gold. Uh, that's uh, Jess, uh, Jesse, and Josh uh, Feldman. They're the two cowboys that cut up on that show a lot, and the one wants to take hot showers out in the wilderness. <laughs> But they are the ones that ride the horses, and I give them about 300 pounds in gear to last me for a week, and they take in, like, my power supplies and other objects, right? Get that stuff out there. But everybody that goes in there has to obey the laws and say we do everything the way it was done 100 years ago or older. You go in on foot or you ride a horse. Wow. And you bring donkeys or, or mule packs or whatever along yeah. with you. So there's and no it, helicoptering people in or no, equipment, nothing like no, that at all, right? No. And if you do take your donkeys or horses in and they stay overnight, you have to bring food. They can't browse. That's right. That's right. So I, I, it costs roughly, to give you an example, $1,200 a run just to get the horses and the gear in. Okay? Yeah. And then and then you've got the overhead of you got to get your food and your other gear in there. All told, we go through maybe $2,000 because usually it's smart to go get a hotel, get up at the crack of dawn, like 4 or 5, and go get a breakfast and get out to the site, start hiking. Then the horses packed will pass you, and then when you get there, it's been dropped, and you got to start building camp, and it's getting dark. Okay? I can average about a mile and a half an hour over that country because it's lava beds, it's high-rise high climbing, there's 30, 45 degrees, uh, uh, volcano and ash and it's rubble as hard you can get hurt in a heartbeat. I have to cross a riverbed 11 times and you know what rivers are like. And when they're flowing and you need that water, that's a disaster waiting to happen. It's slippery, it's algae, it's rolling. The old map I like better. There, the, the Peralta map says you don't have to cross 10 times. I wish it was. <laughs> Is there a better time of year to do the dig? You want to do that in uh, the winter in my opinion. If you go in in spring, things are drying up on you, and you, you can't run the risk of running out of water. If you can handle the cold, and you can handle snow and ice, yeah, cold means down to maybe freezing. Oh. Right? Down to about 32? Yeah. 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 But you, you've, got to, you've got to be buff about this. This is serious work. And I'll tell you another thing I tell people when they go out there. I said, don't think cold. Think heavy rock. I said, nothing out here goes out easy. You can carry 30 pounds if you're lucky. That's two bars of bullion, and we got 31,000 bars. Trust me on this. It's a heavy rock until it's in the museum. That's true, too, because not only do you have to lug things in to get, dig up the archaeological finds, but you're going to have to lug those things back out as well, right? Yes, and I'm going to give you another piece of technical why we need expertise. Uh, what they found at Fort Knox was if they stack two gold bars and they leave them there for a few years, they weld together. Get out. No, you can't pick them up. They got a pallet out there of gold bars they put up on display, left for a year. They went to move them. They all stuck together. They're like wet candy. Gold flows, cold flow. It welded it into one mass. We may have that. 
I'm hoping we don't because my detector images corrosion. That means these are impure. If they're corroded, mm -hmm. you pry them apart. But we don't know. We don't know till you open it up and find out. But what do you do with 10,000 bars in one lump? You can't. I, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> they, may, they may have a very good reason for not moving it. Well, at least you can smile at it, so you know. <laughs> I, I just, I, look, five people died when I did my work from 2010 to 2013. Oh, my God. Okay, three guys went out to the, the Blacktop Mountain just two miles away and died of thirst because they couldn't find the water I had, which is only about two miles away. Oh, Another hmm. man was coming back out, and he, he died six feet off the trail where I take my rest break. He ran out of water and stroked out. And in 2009, as I was getting ready, a young man that uh, had researched this a lot went up on top of those mountains that's uh, got the Dutchman's Mine in it, and he was looking for it. He slipped. He got stuck between two boulders, broke his hip, and broke his legs, and his feet were sticking out in the cracks. They found him two years later. That was a slow, painful death. Oh. I, I want this done to stop damage to the wilderness, right. to stop greed driving people to their death. Yeah, that's insane. This is just dumb, and future generations have to understand this is not about a man's desire for gold or fame. This is about it's time the human race understood what's important and understand the relationship between the Apaches and the miners in our history, the history of New Mexico and its desire for independence. Why are they a poor state? Well, guess where it all went? It's right there, sitting right there. Yep. Yep. And it, these are all heritage sites, as you say, too, as well. Exactly. And I want it declared yeah, and protected as a heritage site. I don't want them to just say, well, it's an archaeological site, leave it alone. Bill, because is, is there a lot involved? We need to get uh, a, an institution, a higher institution attached to us. It's going to make it a lot easier uh, to do this. Uh, and, uh, of course, maybe reaching out to some museums, so museums uh, that have money, that, that, that have someone that wants to get in touch, that wants to get involved with this. So if we can get that going, uh, I think we've got a good, a good chance. And, and we were talking about a documentary. Um, I reached out to several organizations. Uh, we have a production company out of Atlanta that's already indicated they would like to do this. Um, but I'm trying to, you know, get an organization that's done documentaries in the past that, that, uh, uh, that would have some clout. So, so you know, it's it's going to be an uphill struggle, uh, and um, but it's got you know, it's, it's going to be a, it's going to be a, something that's going to be educational. It's going to be fun to do this, and hopefully, at the end of the day, um, you know, we get what we need to get, uh, and and go forward on this in, in November, and and have someone attached to us from an archaeological department from somewhere uh, to assist us in this. What I wanted Robert to tell you, and what I find one of the things I find fascinating about this is that when Robert and his wife were out there, Linda, she discovered these little uh, uh, man-made heart, gold heart, not gold hearts, stone hearts that had been placed there several hundred years ago marking some of these sites that people would just walk over. They wouldn't know what they were. I want Robert to tell you a little bit about this because it's just fascinating that these have been out there and, and they're man-made and these were some of the markers. Well, basically, the, the, as I said, there's a, a white stone that has the instructions on one side, and it's called the priest stone. The other side is a, a map with a horse on it. But it says, basically, you've got to find the heart. And I thought that finding a Latin heart was the final solution. And uh, I, I was with my wife. We were walking around the site on our first visit together there. 
And I said, look, for me to know the exact scale of the map, I need to find what the map calls a stone arch. I know it's got to be here according to the map. I can't find it. She says, oh, you mean the one on the other side of that tree? And sure enough, I walk around the tree where she is. There's, there it is. It wasn't 30 feet away from where the map told me to go. Oh, and I said, you know, if that's there, I said, we got to be standing near caches. There's got to be some stuff here. So I started taking pictures wherever there was bald earth and, and rock and things. Because one of my techniques is take a lot of pictures, come back home, and take my time going through them. Because you can't see everything when you're dying of thirst and you're hot and you're tired and hungry and you're sore. You've seen so much, you get confused. And so I can look at it at camp or I can go back home. And um, I was looking and I saw a stone heart laying in a stone circle. I said, why didn't I see that when I was there? And my wife likes to collect, yes, she likes to collect rocks in the shape of hearts. She unpacks her pack and says, did you see this one? And she pulls out this handmade pink heart made from the ore, from the mines, and it's perfect. And it's like uh, two and a half inches by two and a half inches. It's perfect. I mean, it's got beveled edges and everything like an Indian had made it. And I looked at that, my jaw dropped. So that every time I go back, I go looking around and I keep finding little stone circles laid out like it was around for a grave with a little heart in it. Okay. And I want it and there's bullion under. Wow. Now some of them got scattered in the melee. You need to remember that they got done burying this stuff. They got some clay together. They fired the map that said where everything is. And it was written in Latin. And they had it all disguised, packed up, ready to go, and they wanted to break out, and the Indians have attacked. There were three tribes in the attack. One of the areas is noticed, noted on the maps as the massacre site. And there was an arrest of there, and the foundations of the building that they were in, and once we announced that we had found it, it was tore up, it's gone. But I'm thinking that this site may be protected. I'm hoping it is. However, I don't know how long those stone circles will remain. I photographed some, I told people basically where they are, but my coordinates are going to be within, say, 50 feet. People, people seem to have a problem reading, comprehending, going into the field, and doing. And that's the only thing I have that keeps me hopeful that things won't be destroyed before professionals get there. That's, so you're kind of up against a, a time clock, um, time limitations, because once people are aware they're going to begin there with everything they've got, I suspect. Well, the way the Forest Service put it was that the rules are stacked against them because they have to follow the same laws and regulations any American citizen has. They can't go in with a helicopter. They can't uh, go in unless they go on a horseback or foot. So if they get a call from a site steward that's on a radio or a satellite phone, and he says, I got a group of guys out here and they're digging, they got to go out there on foot. So what often happens is that they'll go up in a helicopter and spot these guys and track them. And I had an associate come up to me uh, that's what he refers to as a Dutch hunter. He says, yeah, we were out there, we were digging, there was five of us. He says, as soon as we hit the, the perimeter edge, a SWAT team of 25 guys in armored bulletproof vests and AR-15s dropped up, surrounded us, busted us, hauled us off to jail, and we all got fined. Holy cow. And they didn't have anything on them. But the site steward had witnessed them, took the evidence, and testified against them. The government is very aggressive about do not disturb this area. On the other hand, they can't, they can't speedily get to you, and people know it. So the only thing they can do is remote access watching. So 
half the time I'm there, I'm watching a Forest Service helicopter. And you know where it tends to hover? About 1,500 feet above that mine I told you about. Is that right? Oh, yeah. So they know. They know. And, and they often drop right down low enough, I think they're dropping off supplies to a site story. Huh. Wow. What a story. Thank you so much. You know, we're, we're going to wrap up because I've kept you an hour and a half now and it was only okay. supposed to be an hour. Um, Bill, do you have any parting words, my friend? No, I'm just, as I said, I, I'm, I'm so happy. I'm, I'm honored to be a part of this. Um, I, I hope I'm able to help Robert uh, in his quest here. Uh, it, it, it means everything to me. I know it means everything to him. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, it's just one of those it's just one of those stories that's compelling if you know about it. Uh, and, you know, um, as I said, I'm honored to be a part of this. And I'm going to do everything I can to help. And, and I'm, I'm so looking forward to, uh, to going into to the mountains and, and taking a look at this, even if we don't have the, the, the permits at that time, still being able to, you know, stand there on historic ground, uh, yeah. hollowed ground, and, uh, and, and see what's there. Yeah, I hear you. Robert, do you have any parting words for us, my friend? Uh, only one addition. Go ahead and uh, go to those sites that you've talked about to right. dig into this. If you missed part of the broadcast, sorry about those problems, the technical problems. And, uh, and uh, I think uh, Will and I will try to figure out how we can stay in connection with people that want to follow up our requests for help. Okay. okay. Maybe you could direct those for us. Absolutely. And, and uh, we're going to try to use uh, some non-disclosure type agreements so that anything that they want to say or do is kept private confidential okay and uh, if we have to in order to fund the works we may end up doing a GoFund site uh, to get those uh, open doors covered financially for the people that just want to see if it's doable you know there's going to be some people that are going to say well we have the status we have the people we don't know if this is worthwhile but I'm willing as an individual to come in and, and route, browse around and I've talked a bit with this uh, video company and I said okay if we get this person please come Please video that. Give them those video records to take back with them. That'd be a nice gift. Absolutely. Something That's the best way I know to roll forward at low risk for people that do want to and can help. Yeah. Oh well, I think it's found. Um, in your mind, are you 100% confident that it's there? Yep. Yeah. I, I took that gold door out and I put it in a museum, like the law said. Yeah. Very good. Folks, we've been speaking with Robert Kesselring tonight, and also uh, we've been speaking with Bill Blackwell. And Robert, I just wanted to uh, mention your last name. We had talked about this off air. Uh, you are indeed um, related to that very famous general, General yes, Kesselring. Yeah, Field Marshal Kesselring, uh, commander at Anzio. Exactly so. And as a, as a small aside, my poor father, he grew up as a teenager during the war. And every time something was going to happen with Field Marshal Kesselring, all the news media would go over and beat on the door and everything. Well, my dad got interested in war technology, of course, and uh, he made the accidental discovery of how thermite worked and took off the front of the house. That also got into the news. <laughs> so, so yeah, we have quite a, an entrepreneur thing. Well, while the first half of the family, the first three generations that came in over and, and left uh, the Nazis behind to have two wars, uh, we came over to make beer and cars, but my father was a, a guidance uh, engineer. He created the nav system for the F-15 before GPS. Get and, out. and then I worked on missile guidance systems and uh, artificial intelligence. And I have patents in those as well. So we, we, we did the, the typical German tactical 
and uh, technical thing. Yep. Any interest in talking about those? Well, it depends on what you are, are interested in. I, uh, uh, my first patent when artificial intelligence was to uh, uh, support a uh, master's thesis. And it required a lot of mathematics. And uh, they didn't have a professor that could handle the math. And the math came out of the Soviet Union, so they went to the University of Texas Arlington and found a Soviet uh, mathematician that had uh, exported himself over to the U.S. And he sat on my review board for my degree. And when uh, one of the engineers got upset, he, he took over the defense of my thesis and read the guy the riot act. And um, so when it was all said and done, uh, the school had tried to patent my thesis, but I uh, had done a good job of protecting it. But basically, it was to uh, build an analog. I'm not allowed legally to say a model. Uh, an analog of the uh, neurons that coat the surface of our brain where all the thinking goes on. And I made it so that it would dissipate very little heat or power. It's almost lossless. And it works at blinding speed of light. And I did a paper on it at the University of North Texas in uh, Texas. And uh, a gentleman that was in the audience, uh, Walter Freeman, a physician and neuroscientist, a well-renowned international, was giving a speech. So I, I, I convinced my professor to accept my thesis during that speech because the two things connected. So I went to that man afterwards and I said, please read my manual. Look at my circuits. Look at the math. Tell me what you think. Just sign it so that your witnesses said, I saw it, I understood it. If questions come up, you can tell them whatever you want. And so this old guy with white hair and gold rim glasses puts them on and he, he's sitting there and he says, uh, hmm, and he gets done, he folds his glasses up and he fingers me and I come back over, right? And uh, he says, uh, where did you come up with this guy, Cole, that you say did all this original work? I said, well, I found his book in a used bookstore. Huh. And I was looking at it and I recognized the circus and I said, this is what we're doing in Japan for artificial intelligence and, and tsunamis, solitons. And the Russians invented the math. I said, I just put the three things together. I said, Eureka, I found the mistake that Mr. Cole made. I corrected it and it started acting like uh, the thinking part of our brains. And I said, I made it electronic, the dang thing dreams. I said, and it, it locks, it goes into synchronicity. I got EEG, I got the whole nine yards. He says, well, I want to tell you, I was that man's grad student and did the work for him. Wow. I said, whoa, so we had a long talk. <laughs> and he signed my papers, and he said, I want you to come to Stanford and work for me. I want to go build some of these. And, and then, as soon as that wind got caught at the symposium, the National Science Foundation's in my face saying, we will fund you to go do that if you can find a sponsor to cover the other half of your funds. And believe it or not, nobody stepped up. Get out. Oh, man. So we could be leading the world in AI if, if they would fund it. Well, I'll give you the second funny. So I'm working at Raytheon and they have this problem and I solved it and I showed them how. And I had a, uh, a radio engineer that worked on missile RF systems and he had been trained by the KGB. Oh. And we both had the highest clearances possible. And we went into the head of the Department of Research and Development down here and uh, showed it to him. We said, we can solve this problem for you. We can do it cheaply. It won't take much. And you can get that contract. He says, I can't accept it. I said, why? He says, because you own the patent. I said, what's the problem? He says, well, that's considered incestuous. We cannot, we cannot let you make money on a patent you brought with you when we hired you. 
we can only make money on patents we own because you did it while you were on our payroll. And they declined. And they didn't get the contract. So there are some pretty screwy ideas. And so working with these people with the with the the, the, the treasurer of the Church of Santa Fe is not the first time I've encountered um, rules and regulations that stand in the way of common sense. That's a shame. That's a darn shame. Um, Brett, uh, your 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 nephew who's at Stanford in the uh, he's in a, the space uh, program there, is he not? Yes, he is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my uh, my nephew Tyler Reed is um, in the space program, and uh, every now and then they send a weather balloon up uh, with a GoPro attached to it. Cool. <laughs> and, and the coolest part, of course, is you know as soon as it hits the atmosphere, it bursts, mm-hmm. and they capture it all on film and the plunge. <laughs> Grand Canyons, and and uh, last time they sent one up uh, to cover the Grand Canyon, it, it fell on uh, Navajo land, I believe, uh, First First Nations folks, and um, the First Nations person found the camera, actually. Cool. Yeah, it was really, Lovely. really cool. Yeah, he's uh, very proud of him, very, very proud of him. And um, so, yeah, now he's working with GPS. I know he was working last summer with Google uh-huh. on their, uh, their car. And uh, I'm not sure what he's got planned for this summer, but uh, he's always doing something. He's having a hoot. <laughs> Brent, are you a uh, are you a Google Earth guy? A Google what? Sorry. Google Earth a, a guy? Yes, Do you sir. Google Earth? Yes, sir. Well, let me send you some files that relate to this uh, this research, so that you can entertain yourself. You can go and look at these sites uh, through the eyes of Google Earth. That'd be great, and everybody else can do these too, folks. Uh, what would they search if they wanted to find it themselves? Well, I'll tell you. I offered up all the files that I can provide you to uh, DesertUSA.com. I think that they didn't want to own responsibility for what would happen if we gave them the locations for the treasures. I see. So what they did was they um, they showed how the the large-scale map works. So anybody that wants to take that and then reproduce my work, which I described, they could recreate the missing files. I provided those files to the Superstition Mountain Historical Society because they have archives and collect data from all of the authors that have ever produced subjects on the uh, on the works of uh, documents and like maps. Okay. So I give them copies of all my work in detail because future researchers may need it. Absolutely. Now, when you went to Google Earth and did your original search and found the arrow, what did you search for? Was there coordinates that you punched in, or was there? No, I had I had uh, a real solid recall that it was across due east of Weaver's Needle, where the uh, Peralta uh, petroglyph map had been. And the area is kind of called Music Canyon, and there's a spring over there, uh, uh, Charlotte Boys Springs. And so I knew where to look within about two miles. So I just had a small radius. So I just I just got over the site and at a viewing distance of 10,000 feet, it's sticking out like a yield sign. It's right wow. there. You don't miss it. It's huge. Huh. I just got close enough and bam, there it is. There it is. That is so cool. Well, we'll wrap up. It looks like we lost Bill again. <laughs> it's time to quit. Skype is, uh, I don't know what's up with it tonight, but it's all over the place, folks. And I want to thank you for sticking with us. And absolutely, I want to thank Robert Kesselring for sticking with us as well. Um, this is uh he stuck through us when the calls have been dropped and everything else. So uh, kudos to you, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you for your help, sir. Thank you, and we'll be in touch again with a question. Thank you, Bill Blackwell, wherever you are. 
And uh, we'll be in touch too, Bill. No worries there. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, I'll be right back in two seconds. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. See you all next time. witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.